0: So in the very last part of this episode, we hear the composer Philip Glass saying that from very early on in life, he knew that music was going to be his path. And it strikes me, even though I say that I'm a poet and someone who writes fiction and nonfiction even, um, it strikes me that for most of us, and probably for me as well, uh, my path and our path, for many listeners out there, is the taking in of that music that Philip Glass is trying to make. It is in reading the novels, reading the short stories, uh, reading the magazine articles, reading the biographies, watching the movies, looking at the paintings. All of these little bits of culture that we become attuned to and attached to and that give our lives meaning and might even change the literal trajectory of our lives, our choices. Uh, That is our path, and I wanted to um, spend this episode with musicians and just thinking about uh, what it means to live with these people whose music uh, means so much to our lives. I think I've uh, told just a very small anecdote here before of being a, uh, in the summer between junior and senior year of high school when I got my driver's license, finally, and I drove to the store and got drove to the mall about 40 minutes away and got a new pair of tennis shoes at Foot Locker, and I also got a copy of Bush's 16 Stone, that CD, uh, from the mid-90s, I think, and I went to a McDonald's because now I was in the car by myself and I had a license, and what else are you going to do but go and express that freedom? by going and eating McDonald's by yourself. And I can still see the day, smell the day. Um, I'm just sitting in the parking lot by myself with my new driver's license, eating McDonald's and listening to uh, Bush's 16 Stone. And I could multiply an, an anecdote like that a million times over, but the people I want to talk about tonight are uh, Patti Smith, and I read an excerpt from a, uh, a memoir she wrote about 10 years ago now, I think, called Just Kids, about her early life and her early life in New York City with the photographer Robert Mapplethorpe. And in that sense, we are we are looking at two people who became extremely famous for the stuff that they do. But what the memoir shows, at least to me, is, um, especially with their jaunts down to Coney Island, especially with their sort of shit jobs and their apartment that is filled just with whatever they could barely even afford. Um, the example of their life is that their early life of being in love wasn't that much different from many people's lives who are in love and who are living in a city and uh, who don't decide to get married immediately. I mean, that's, it's a very familiar tale. And in the second part of this episode, I talk about my attachment to uh, the music of Mazzy Starr, not only in high school, but also when I found their music again in my early 20s, and have really never stopped listening to it since then. And then I share an anecdote from a listener. And by the way, if anyone wants to share or send me stories that are along these lines that have happened to them, uh, check the email in the post description, and you can do that. And I may very well use it in an upcoming episode because I think what my friend, uh, a very early listener to this podcast, sent me about being, you know, 50-ish years old and going to see the band Living Color for the first time who are on tour, and this after having listened to their music for, I think he said, for the past 25 or 30 years, uh, what kind of an impact that had on him, not just seeing how how old these people were by comparison to the image of them that he had in his mind, but also perhaps maybe um, even that he himself is getting older and that we have this image of, strange image of fame where uh, you have a band that has been in the public eye the entire time and you watch them age, I suppose, but if you have a band that was famous for half a second or a few years and and then they keep making music, but they're just not as well known. You don't see them on the covers of magazines anymore, but you can tell that they're still touring and they're still making albums. And suddenly, as my friend says, you went to see them and they looked completely different from what he would have imagined. And his his sense of what this meant to him uh, was quite a surprise and quite a moving one. And so after that, uh, I end, as I mentioned, with uh, uh, with Philip Glass, the composer Philip Glass, who has had quite a career with uh, Eastern music. He learned a great deal, I believe, from, uh, from composers and uh, classically trained musicians in India. Um, someone who refused to do uh, movie scores early in his career, it is probably nowadays known almost exclusively uh, for that by the wider listening public, you might say but who is still really out there with his very, uh, early avant garde operas. And we just get a sense of what, of how these lives begin and how we as listeners sort of take all of it in. And so I suppose we can just, uh, end with that right here and, uh, get down to the episode right after this message. 20 years old, and keep in mind that I was born in a suburb of Cleveland, and when I was 12 or 13, ended up moving further away even uh, from that to a more rural area of northeastern Ohio. And so when I was 20 years old, or whenever this memory takes place, uh, I went to visit a friend of mine who I'd gone to high school with, who lived in Cleveland with his father. His parents were divorced. And I can't remember why I went there and, or really what I was doing there actually. But I think I spent Friday into Saturday or Saturday into Sunday um, at his place. And maybe he was in a band then and I went to see him play, something like that. And I remember getting up and walking around by myself. Um, I wasn't in a relationship then, and for some reason my friend didn't go walking with me. And this image of me just walking around a neighborhood in Cleveland, uh, sort of a hip neighborhood you might say, uh, in Cleveland let's say around 1999 or 2000 or so, um, 1998 maybe. Is all very strange to think about to try and pin this down. Um, I don't know why, but I keep coming back to this memory of me walking around. It's the winter time, and there's just the feeling of it not being the suburbs where I'm from, and it not being uh, this more rural area that I'm also from, and of it being something like what I'd always imagined uh, living alone or living away from home might actually be, and for a long time that memory was of New New York City or literary Paris or something like that, or it was what I remember from this morning, just of walking around Cleveland by myself, not attached to anybody romantically, and uh, just doing that, and I keep coming back to this memory and trying to figure out why it has such a hold on me. Perhaps it was just that it was uh, before I had a lot of bills to pay and before so much of what we call life actually started, where what I imagined was still a possibility in the air. But, uh, and I've tried to put this into short stories and novels as well, and uh, at least up until now, it hasn't quite worked. But that is the reason why I wanted to read two passages from uh, Patti Smith's memoir called uh, Just Kids Tonight. Um, you can read the book and start it anywhere, and you will find uh, just beautiful passages about Patti Smith moving to New York City and living with the photographer Robert Mapplethorpe before he became more infamous as the NEA photographer who Uh, got involved in that whole controversy. Um, But when you just think about uh, these two young artists getting together and actually doing what so many people around America and around the world sort of fantasize about and romanticize of actually uh, living together in New York City on very little at all and uh, just making a go of it and being creative people. I can't think of a, a better book out there to read about two people who actually did it, and only later became actually uh, famous enough to where their story would matter, would be able to touch people, would be able to uh, inform their lives. Um, I can't think of a better book than Patty Smith's Just Kids. And indeed, Johnny Depp has a blurb on the back of the book that says, uh, "Patty Smith has graced us with a poetic masterpiece, a rare and privileged invitation to unlatch a treasure chest never before breached. And the only thing about that, though, is that this supposed treasure chest has actually been breached by anybody, as I've been saying throughout this uh, entire podcast, um, it's been breached by anybody who is creative at all in any way, whoever, uh, whoever fell in love when they were uh, 19 or 20 or 21 years old, and they had the experience of moving in with their boyfriend or girlfriend for the first time, and uh, not living on very much at all, and just wondering about what life would end up bringing to them. Uh, that is not just a treasure chest of uh, Patty Smith and Robert Mapplethorpe. I don't think the gift of this book is that it is specifically about them, As if you could get a hint as to what quote-unquote real creativity or real genius might be for this songwriter and this poet and this photographer who actually did end up making a name for themselves. I think all of it is really just an indication of what so many people do all the time. We just uh, don't know their names. And so these two passages, short passages, that I'm going to read from just strike me and they're moving because they seem to be descriptions, um, not of two specific people, but of, uh, or not of just one specific couple, but of thousands uh, of couples uh, throughout history. Uh, The first one simply says this, Robert and I rose early. We had put aside money for our second anniversary. I had prepared our clothing the night before, washing our things in the sink. He squeezed out the excess water, as his hands were stronger, and draped the clothes over the iron headboard we used as a clothesline. In order to dress for the occasion, he disassembled the piece in which he had stretched two black t-shirts on a vertical frame. I had sold the Faulkner book and, along with a week's rent, was able to buy Robert a Borsellino hat At the JJ Hat Center on Fifth Avenue. It was a fedora and I watched him comb his hair and try it on in different ways before the mirror. He was obviously pleased as he jokingly pranced around in his anniversary hat. He put the book I was reading, my sweater, his cigarettes, and a bottle of cream soda in a white sack. He didn't mind carrying it because it lent him a sailor's air we boarded the F train and rode to the end of the line, that is, to Coney Island. And she says, I always loved the ride to Coney Island. Just the idea that you could go to the ocean via subway was so magical. I was deeply absorbed in a biography of Crazy Horse when I snapped the present and looked at Robert. He was like a character in Brighton Rock in his 40s style hat, black net t-shirt, and Heratius. We pulled into our stop, I leapt to my feet, filled with the anticipation of a child slipping the book into the sack, and he took my hand. Nothing was more wonderful to me than Coney Island with its gritty innocence. It was our kind of place, the fading arcades, the peeling signs of bygone days, cotton candy and cubie dolls on a stick dressed in feathers and glittering top hats we wandered through the last gasp of the side shows they had lost their lustre though they still touted such human oddities as the donkey-faced boy the alligator man and the three-legged girl robert found the world of freaks fascinating though of late he was forgoing them for leather boys and his work. We strolled the sidewalk, we strolled the boardwalk rather, and got our picture taken by an old man with a box camera. We had to wait for an hour for it to be developed, and so we went to the end of a long fishing pier where there was a shack that served coffee and hot chocolate. Pictures of Jesus, President Kennedy, and the astronauts were taped to the wall behind the register. It was one of my favorite places, and I would often daydream of getting a job there and living in one of the old tenement buildings across from Nathan's, the hot dog place. And all along the pier, young boys and their grandfathers were crabbing. They'd slide raw chicken as bait in a small cage on a rope and hurl it over the side, the pier was swept away in a big storm in the 80s, but Nathan's, which was Robert's favorite place, remained. Normally, we only had money for one hot dog and a Coke. He would eat most of the dog and I most of the sauerkraut. But that day, we had enough money for two of everything. We walked across the beach to say hello to the ocean, and I sang him the song, Coney Island Baby, By the excellence he wrote our names in the sand we were just ourselves that day without a care it was our good fortune that this moment in time was frozen in a box camera it was our first real New York portrait who we were only weeks before we had been at the bottom but our blue star as Robert called it was rising We boarded the F train for the long ride back, returned to our little room and cleared off the bed, happy to be together. And if you want to see that Polaroid picture, get a copy of Just Kids and it is the frontispiece and it is a wonderful picture um, of the two of them. Uh, The second passage happens uh, earlier in the book, but it ends with uh, the anecdote of where the title comes from, Just Kids. And so I wanted to end uh, the uh, reading here with uh, with that part of it. And uh, this is when they're beginning to move in together. Uh, She says, I scrubbed the mattress with baking soda. Robert rewired the lamps, adding vellum shades, tattooed with his own designs. He was good with his hands. Still the boy who had made jewelry for his mother, he worked for some days restringing a beaded curtain and hung it at the entrance of our bedroom. At first I was a little skeptical about the curtain. I had never seen such a thing, but it eventually harmonized with my own gypsy elements. I went back to South Jersey and retrieved my books and clothing. While I was gone, Robert hung his drawings. And draped the walls with Indian cloth. He dressed the mantle with religious artifacts, candles, and souvenirs for the Day of the Dead, arranging them as if sacred objects on an altar. Finally, he prepared a study area for me with little work table and the frayed magic carpet. We combined our belongings. My few records were filed in the orange crate with his, my winter coat hung next to his sheepskin vest. My brother gave us a new needle for our record player, and my mother made us meatball sandwiches wrapped in tinfoil. We ate them and happily listened to Tim Hardin, his songs becoming our songs, the expression of our young love. My mother also went, also sent along a parcel of sheets and pillowcases. They were soft and familiar, possessing the sheen of years of wear. They reminded me of her as she stood in the yard, assessing with satisfaction the wash on the line as it fluttered in the sun. My treasured objects were mingled with the laundry. My work area was a jumble of manuscript pages, musty classics, broken toys and talismans. I tacked pictures of Rimbaud, Bob Dylan, Lenya, Piaf, Genet, and John Lennon over a makeshift desk where I arranged my quills, my ink will, and my notebooks. My monastic mess. I mean, right there. Uh, What is Johnny Depp talking about? A treasure chest never before breached. That is the description of... uh, I mean, just, just change the names. That is a description of a million early poets and musicians' desks, isn't it? My monastic mess with your uh, heroes uh, and their photos uh, tacked to the wall. Um, When I came to New York, I had brought a few colored pencils and a wood slate to draw on. I had drawn a girl at a table before a spread of cards, a girl divining her fate. It was the only drawing I had to show Robert, which he liked very much. He wanted me to experience working with fine paper and pencils and shared his materials with me. We would work side by side for hours in a state of mutual concentration. We hadn't much money, but we were happy. Robert worked part-time and took care of the apartment. I did the laundry and made our meals, which were very limited. There was an Italian bakery we frequented off Waverly. We would choose a nice loaf of day old bread or a quarter pound of their stale cookies, offered at half price. Robert had a sweet tooth, so the cookies often won out. Sometimes the woman behind the counter would give us extra and fill the small brown paper sack to the brim with yellow and brown pinwheels, shaking her head and murmuring friendly. Disapproval. Most likely she could tell that it was our dinner. We would add takeout coffee and a carton of milk. Robert loved chocolate milk, but it was more expensive, and we would deliberate whether to spend the extra dime. We had our work and one another. We didn't have the money to go to concerts or movies or to buy new records, but We played the ones we had over and over. We listened to My Madam Butterfly, as sung by Eleanor Staber, A Love Supreme, Between the Buttons, Joan Baez, and Blonde on Blonde. Robert introduced me to his favorites, Vanilla Fudge, Tim Buckley, Tim Harden, and his history of Motown provided the backdrop for our nights of communal joy. And here we are. This is the anecdote that I'll end with here. This is wonderful. Uh, Again, says so much about fame and expectation and the way we view people who do end up being famous and the way we sort of don't view ourselves because somehow we didn't become famous and these other people did and we imagine this vast gulf between us. But just listen to this. This is a remarkable uh, three paragraphs. Uh, Patty Smith says... Uh, One Indian summer day, we dressed in our favorite things, me in my beatnik sandals and ragged scarves, and Robert with his love beads and sheepskin vest. We took the subway to West 4th Street and spent the afternoon in Washington Square. We shared coffee from a thermos, watching the stream of tourists, stoners, and folk singers. Agitated revolutionaries distributed anti-war leaflets. Chess players drew a crowd of their own. Everyone coexisted within a continuous drone of verbal diatribes, bongos, and barking dogs. We were walking toward the fountain, the epicenter of activity, when an older couple stopped and openly observed us. Robert enjoyed being noticed and he affectionately squeezed my hand. Oh, take their picture, said the woman to her bemused husband. I think they're artists. Oh, go on, he shrugged. They're just kids. listeners of a certain age will recognize that voice, they'll recognize uh, that song. That is Hope Sandoval, the lead singer of Mazzy Star, and that is perhaps their most famous song, Fade Into You, which came out on an album in 1993 called So Tonight That I Might See. Now I want to try something a little different uh, with this segment and read part of a message that I received from a listener. But I wanted to preface it with, uh, I guess, my own version of what the listener has to say. Um And in my case, just as a reference to Mazzy Starr, I remember that song from the 90s, from when I was in high school and whatever. Uh, however it moved me. Uh, Eleven years later, in 2004, the summer of 2004... I ordered that CD on Amazon used because that's the only way I could get it and I'm pretty sure that is the last CD that I had to order um, if I wanted the music. Uh, This was before uh, the streaming services and I wasn't really into Napster and I don't think I had the tech wherewithal to uh, burn CDs at the library or at home or anything like that. But something pushed me to find that album so I can listen to that song. And it's been a, an amazing discovery to to see that that entire album is almost like one song. Um, it is a, a beautiful thing that you can listen to when you're 18, 19, 20 years old or when you are nowadays 44 years old. And I went uh, recently to to their other albums, She Hangs Brightly. In 1990 among my swan 1996 and then all of a sudden I noticed something called seasons of your day in 2013 and something from 2018 called still and uh, what a, a beautiful I guess it should have been a shock at all really um, just another beautiful experience these people are still going and hope Sandoval's voice sounds as good as it did back in 1990 And it was just sort of a uh, a realization that maybe in the 90s, um, and I suppose since then, in the way I've talked about fame and uh, being well-known on this podcast, there's a sense that when you are able to create something like that song, Fade Into You, or a book that catches on, or a movie, there's a sense that the way we look at people who create these things, that they are somehow rarified or that they, you know, don't uh, put their pants on one leg at a time in the morning. And it's just a wonderful thing to see when I suddenly discovered that they're still making music, they still sound great, um, and that they've perhaps been doing that all along um, under the radar, under the immense fame that they must have experienced um, in the early 90s and the mid 90s. Um, and that is sort of a lesson, I think, that uh, none of this stuff actually is rarefied. It goes back to the previous segment tonight on Patti Smith and Robert Mapplethorpe. Um, it isn't that their story is uh, better than everybody else's. It just so happens that they were the ones who became famous musicians, famous poets, and uh, a famous photographer, in Robert Mapplethorpe's case. And so it was sort of up to them to be representative of a type, representative of a generation, representative of an experience. Um, You wouldn't read just anybody's memoir, or most people wouldn't anyway, about what it was like to live in New York City in the early 1970s. Uh, But you would read Patti Smith's, and I think we're uh, blessed with that memoir and just a, a sense of How it is that people actually live who are creative and who are otherwise. And I think that's a good segue into just what my friend had to say. Uh, perhaps a little better than I have, but along very similar lines. And this is what, uh, this is what he says. In terms of the life of the artist, I mentioned that back at the end of the summer, I went to see the band Living Color in a small venue in Virginia. Unsated, I drove to New Jersey to see them again a few weeks later. And since they're still touring, I've bought tickets to see them this winter in West Virginia and Atlantic City as well. I don't know anyone else who knows them well. So being in a venue where other people were singing along with the songs that I have sung in my car for 30 years was an unexpected thrill. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? These, this sense that we have from some of these things, that they're so, such an intense experience for us privately that it is hard to believe that other people uh, out there in the world are having similar versions of that private experience with these same songs, with these same poems or films or what, what have you. And my friend says, Since the late 1980s, I've known almost nothing about the band, except for their music and a few of their videos. And as a listener, I had a relationship, so to speak, with the music alone. But now that I've seen them live, and I've caught up on the more recent three albums that I'd missed, I've stumbled across video and print interviews with the guys in the band. I've learned about the ups and downs of their lives and careers in the past 30 years, and suddenly they are Humans, aging humans, behind this music that I've enjoyed for so long. Again, the the question that I've asked a million times on this podcast, how does Homer take out the garbage? Uh, It is incredible to me to think that uh, the woman who sang all the songs on So So Tonight That I Might Sleep, uh, that still, whatever is going on today in 2023, she takes out the garbage, she... Uh, does her laundry, she goes to the grocery store, she talks to a friend, she goes out and gets a coffee, she sits in front of a window uh, doing not really much of anything at all. But isn't that uh, what probably happens with nearly everybody uh, that we admire? Anybody that uh, I should say as a caveat isn't in that entirely different stratosphere of millionaires and billionaires who do seem to have utterly different lives from the rest of us, but someone who was famous for a moment uh, is still doing now what they did to make themselves famous, but is doing it in a different and more quiet and more silent and more uh, anonymous and unobtrusive way. They're still just there, and in many ways nothing has changed, um, except our apprehension, as my friend says here. He says, Uh, Seeing that the guitarist is 65, and the lead singer is now heavy-set, and pushing 60, was a shock. It was wonderful to go to rock out at one of their shows, and I'm eager to do it again because they never play the same set list twice, but at the same time, it's been weird to go to these shows and feel both a renewed sense of youth for a couple of hours, while also seeing the full... Mortality of four guys on display on stage, and I think what my friend may also mean is that he is uh he sees his own uh mortality if not on the stage um or maybe it is on the stage that's what that's what musicians and performers like these uh do. they are reflections of ourselves in the end they're not rarefied at all; they are versions perhaps of ourselves that we see, and he closes his remark by saying. I'll be listening to all of their albums differently from now on. And, fool that I am, I am already nostalgic for late July, when I saw them for the first time and was excited, not knowing what to expect. Is that not a bit nuts? And I don't think he would ask that question if he actually thought that it was nuts, because it isn't really at all. Um, it, it, It connects with a memory of mine, a very vivid one, Um, of my mother coming home from work one day. must have been in 1994 or 1995. And she had Pearl Jam's second album with her. And I went uh, immediately upstairs to listen to it because I had asked her to go and get it for me uh, from Best Buy on the way home from work. And a few years later, I did the same thing, except what did I ask her to get? I asked her to go find a copy of Dante's Divine Comedy in the bookstore, And uh, she came home with the first volume. I didn't even know it was three volumes. Um, I had only heard the name in the movie uh, Seven, and I wanted uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. And she comes home with the translation by Ellen Mandelbaum, which is still one of the most important books in my life. Um, And I suppose that when I look at that paperback now, when I look at uh, Pearl Jam's second Album now the cover and the liner notes and everything, the orange uh, CD that it came with. Um, is that nostalgia? Just the sudden uprush of of pure meaning and experience, I suppose, um, and maybe a sense that what my friend experienced in late July—I believe he's fifty now—is um, maybe even not maybe even nostalgia isn't the right word. It is just an uprush of what meaning was when he was young, what meaning still is now, and a repeat of it back in late July. Is that not a bit nuts? Well, I don't think that it is at all, really. And to finish up tonight, why don't we just stick with musicians? Here are two passages from the composer Philip Glass's memoir called Words Without Music. Glass was born in 1937 and is most well known for his, I guess you would say, avant-garde opera like Einstein on the Beach. But I guess even that isn't true. He's probably more well known now as a composer of film music, but here he is talking about, uh, in this first passage, just his early experience of learning a learning an instrument with his other siblings. He says, Sheppy, Marty, and I all began with music when we were quite young. Shep and Marty had weekly piano lessons from a piano teacher who traveled from home to home, giving children lessons. But I had chosen to study the flute. Beginning at age six, I had taken some violin lessons, given as group classes at the Park School, my first elementary school. For some reason, the violin didn't take, which is odd to imagine, given that I've written so much string music, solo, quartets, sonatas, symphonies, since then. I do recall, though, that there was a boy a year older than me at my school who had a flute. I thought it was the most beautiful instrument I had ever seen or heard, and I wanted to do nothing more than to play the flute. I wound up playing it until I was 30, and in fact, even in my first professional concerts, I was playing the flute as well as keyboards." Then he goes back to his childhood again. When my dad came home from the Marines in 1945. The family moved from the center of town that is uh, he grew up he was born and grew up in Baltimore uh, the family moved from the center of town to a neighborhood of semi-detached and duplex homes out on Liberty Road where the old number 22 streetcar line ran the number 22 streetcar would play an important part in my life until I left for the University of Chicago in 1952 I had been permitted to have flute lessons, but there was no teacher in the neighborhood. But the number 22 streetcar ran all the way downtown to Mount Vernon Place, home to Baltimore's Washington Monument, which faced the Peabody Conservatory. The streetcar had yellow wicker seats that were dirty most of the time. Its metal wheels ran on tracks, and it got its electricity from overhead cables. There was one man in the front who was the driver, and there was another man, a conductor, who took the money, ten or twelve cents. I don't know if I paid at all for the first few years, since I was under twelve years old. The fourth floor of Peabody had a long corridor, with practice rooms on either side, with benches where I waited for my teacher. There was no flute teacher in the preparatory division of the Peabody, And so I was admitted to the conservatory and had my lessons from Britton Johnson, then first chair flutist with the Baltimore Symphony. He was a wonderful teacher and had been himself a student of William Kincaid, the first chair flutist at the Philadelphia Orchestra, who was widely considered one of the greatest flutists of all time. So I had blue blood lineage when it came to flute playing. Mr. Johnson, who now has a memorial prize named after him, was round, 200 pounds for sure, but not tall, maybe 40 or 50 years old, and still, when I began my studies, at the height of his playing. And he liked me a lot. He complimented me, saying that I had a great embrasure, which meant my lips were built for the flute. But, at the same time, he knew that I was not going to be A flutist I don't know how he knew that but I think he figured I was a kid coming from a kind of struggling middle-class family that was never going to allow their son to become a musician and that whatever talent I had was not going to come to fruition mr. Johnson would look at me and he would sigh and shake his head at least a few times after my lessons not because I was a bad flutist but because he believed I could become a really good one, and he was right. I had the potential, but it was never fully realized. I don't know if Mr. Johnson ever found out what happened to me. I doubt it. He might have known, but he would have been surprised. Mr. Johnson was quite right about the family pressure, in that everyone was constantly pushing me in quite a different direction. But ultimately, he was wrong because I was not going to let myself get pushed around that way. In fact, I really wanted both piano and flute lessons. Though they were opposed to the idea of music as a profession, Ida and Ben, his parents, uh, Ida and Ben both considered music education basic to a fully rounded educational program. But my parents were far from well off and on her schoolteacher's salary, my mother actually earned more than my father. Still, with whatever money they earned, we were given music lessons. However, the economy of our family could allow for only one lesson per child, and the flute became my instrument. And listen to this. I I love this uh, little anecdote here. Philip Glass says, Not to be deterred, I would sit quietly in the living room during my brother's piano lessons, and follow his lessons with absolute attention. The moment the lesson was over and the teacher out of the house, I would dash over to the piano, which had miraculously appeared in our new home shortly after we arrived there, and play my brother's lesson. Of course, this upset Marty to no end. He was convinced I was stealing his lessons. At the very least, I was pestering him by playing better. He was half right, though. I was a first class pesky younger brother. I was simply there to steal the lesson. No more, no less. Marty would chase me off the piano and around the living room and give me a few good knocks along the way. But for me, this price of admission was cheap and easy. In retrospect, What was quite remarkable was that I would, at the age of eight, take an afternoon streetcar ride to downtown Baltimore alone and, after my one-hour weekly lesson, take the same number 22 streetcar back home. In the dark, I would alight from the streetcar at Hillsdale Road and run the six blocks to our house as fast as I could. I was truly terrified of the dark. Though the ghosts and dead people were the images that pursued me, it never occurred to me, to my parents, or my teachers, that I had anything actually to fear from living real-life monsters. But in 1945 Baltimore, they wouldn't be encountered anyway. And besides, all the streetcar conductors soon knew me, and I was made to sit near them at the front of the streetcar. And really, uh, it's the number 22 streetcar that is the key to all of this. And I wonder what the equivalents are to everyone out there listening now. Uh, some version of, of that. Uh, I wonder if Philip Glass has spoken or written more about the number 22 streetcar elsewhere. Uh, but I wanted to end, actually, with the opening pages of Philip Glass's memoir, Words Without Music because this is also immensely vivid, and I even wrote it uh, in the margins here, uh, use this for a story, and I haven't been able to do it yet, but uh, who knows if I will at some point. And uh, it's a small passage, and this is what it says. If you go to New York City to study music, you'll end up like your Uncle Henry, spending your life traveling from city to city and living in hotels. that is a quotation, that was my mother, Ida Glass, when she heard of my plans, I was sitting with her at the kitchen table in my parents' house in Baltimore, having come back home after graduating from the University of Chicago. Uncle Henry, a cigar-smoking bantamweight with a heavy Brooklyn accent, was married to Aunt Marcella, my mother's sister, who herself had escaped from Baltimore, a full generation before me. Uncle Henry was, in fact, a drummer. He had dropped out of dental school short, shortly after the end of World War One to become an itinerant musician, playing for the next 50 years mainly in vaudeville houses and holiday hotels and with dance bands all over the country. In his later years, he played in the hotels of the Catskills, known then, and actually still now, as the Borscht Belt. He was probably playing in one of those hotels, Grossinger's, I would bet, at that time, in the spring of 1957, when I was planning my future, and you can understand why I put the word story next to that uh, description of Uncle Henry. Uh, Uncle Henry should have written his memoir as well, I would think. Um, In any case, I liked Uncle Henry and thought he was a pretty good guy, and truth be told, I was far from horrified by the prospect of traveling from city to city and living in hotels. I mean, you don't have to be, um, you don't even have to look at it unrealistically or just romantically. Um, You can just see it for what it is, and you can understand the appeal that it would have for someone in their twenties or even in their forties, and Philip Glass says, I was rather looking forward eagerly to that, to a life filled with music and travel. And I was completely thrilled with the whole idea. And as it turned out, many decades later, my mother's description was completely accurate. As I begin this book, that is precisely what I am doing, traveling from Sydney on my way to Paris by way of Los Angeles and New York, and playing concerts all along the way. Of course, that's not the whole story, but it is a significant part of it. Ida Glass was always a pretty smart woman. And if you read uh, the rest of Philip Glass's memoir, you see that even before he became a well-known composer, um, he was traveling around doing the same thing uh, with small groups of classically trained musicians as well, sort of... um, making little and having very little, but he was still getting it done. And it's nice to see that even in his uh, relative old age, he is still doing the same thing as well, even though he is able to, you might say, pay for all of it a little bit better. And then he just closes this passage by saying this as a young man in cautious and curious, my head full of plans. I was already doing what I would always do. I had started playing the violin at six, the flute and piano at eight, had begun composing at fifteen, and now, having finished college, I was impatient to start my, quote, real life, which I had known all along would be in music. Since I was very young, I had been drawn to music, felt connected to it, and I knew that it was my path.